Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. No need to stop celebrating now. Y'all go ahead and lift up some praise. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know. I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he We have a church up in here, geez. Man, it's good to see y'all. Uh, he is risen. Some of y'all got it. Okay, some of y'all. We've been doing this for eight years now. We've been practicing every Easter. When I say he is risen, you're supposed to say, You nailed it. Good job. There we go. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Jesus is alive. And look, I want you to know that I know. Um, that not everybody in this room uh, is a follower of Jesus or is even interested in being a follower of Jesus. I get that. Uh, and I want you to know that like, this is a safe place for you to not be sure. Um, I'm, I didn't, I'm not expecting you to believe or agree with everything that I'm, I'm going to be telling you from the scriptures today. But I just want you to know like, we have become so convicted by what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives. And we've devoted our lives to it. And we've devoted our lives to his word because we've seen just the timeless impact that the word of God has had on the generations. But if you're a skeptic or, 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 an, or an outright rejecter, like not a believer at all, like, this is a safe place for you to not be sure. But I just want you to know, like, you're going to be hearing us talk a lot about Jesus and his transforming power. And all the while, we're going to be praying for you, too, because we just want you to, like, we just want you to feel just the vastness and the depth of the love of God that was made available to you as well and offered to you as well. And, like, we're, we, we have just been transformed and are being transformed by it, and so we're hoping that you will also just taste and see what is good. And, um, and by the way, we do that every weekend because we like to celebrate Jesus around here. He really is the most, the, the most pivotal figure in the history of the world. Whether you believe in him as king or as God or not, you cannot deny that he is the central figure of the human race. There is nobody ever that has walked the face of the planet that has had more followers or sparked more controversy than this one solitary life. There's a reason why we flip on the TV this time of year. The radio waves, TVs, all the media outlets are flooded this week with declarations of Jesus as king or debates about him. And I don't know what else we've debated for the last 2,000 years, but I'm pretty sure this is all that's left. And so if we're still debating it 2,000 years later, there must be something true about it. And we didn't just start following Jesus, those of us that do, because we just like 
tethered ourselves to some ancient Christian folklore. Because like, here's the deal with Jesus versus every other religion in the world. Like he, he appeared publicly, he lived publicly, he died publicly, he resurrected publicly. There was no private revelation between a couple of prophets that was eventually declared out to everybody else. Like Jesus died on the cross and anybody that wanted to come and watch could see it. And sure enough, on the third day, Sunday morning, that stone had been rolled away and he wasn't in there anymore. And it's like, geez, well, where did Jesus go? Well, he was hanging out at Starbucks, at the gas station, at the grocery store <laughs> for the next 40 days. It's not like he just had one private meeting with his apostles and said, hey, I'm alive, go tell everybody else. He hung out in town for the next 40 days. That's why there are hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness accounts throughout history that have declared that the one who died on the cross was sure enough walking down the street a week later. Man, he's alive. That's why we believe it. That's why we believe it. And so today we celebrate his resurrection because it is his resurrection that gives us hope. Because like the power of Jesus was enough not only to die on the cross for our sins, but when he walked out of that grave, he defeated our greatest enemies. He defeated death, everything that goes along with death. He gave death itself a death sentence, and he defanged the foe that we call the devil. So that no longer does he have power over us anymore either. He was given a death sentence that day too. Because if the grave couldn't hold him, then nothing can stop our king. So we celebrate that. That's why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And now, like, some of you noticed, like, as you came in, um, we, we were passing out communion cups. Now, I want you to know that I know you're supposed to do communion on Monday, Thursday. Um, but we decided, you know what, let's just wait till everybody's here and let's do it on Sunday. Uh, that, we wanted to do that because we want to remember and reflect over the body and blood of Jesus and the work that he has done and is doing in our lives. And so, like, we are celebrating the resurrection today, but I want you to know, like, there was, there was, a, there was a very specific moment in Jesus' ministry prior to his death and resurrection that made the resurrection all the more meaningful for the rest of us. And so that's kind of where I want to jump into today, and it kind of leads us towards the Lord's Supper and his table. And so if you have your Bibles, flip on over to Mark chapter 14. Um, I really encourage you to bring your Bibles to church, like actual physical copies, because I want you to read along with me, take notes, and I want you to make sure I'm not lying to you. I want you to make sure that whatever I'm teaching is consistent with what the Word of God is actually saying, and I'm just not just making stuff up and entertaining you on Sundays, okay? And so that's why I want you to have your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have it on the Bible in the sky, and so you can follow along there too. So here's the deal. Jesus resurrected. He spent 40 days with his apostles, with people from the community as disciples were flocking around him. But if we, if we rewind the tape back a little bit further, as Jesus was preparing his heart to go to the cross, as well as preparing the hearts of his disciples about what was about to happen, he gathered them together in this very traditional sacred meal, which was a Passover supper. It was Passover this was the point in history that it was. It was that time of year again where you gather together with your family and loved ones and you remember the promises of God through the Passover meal. And so let's jump into the story where Jesus is having this upper room experience with his apostles and see what he has to say to us. Mark chapter 14, verse 17, which by the way, hey, before we jump into this, I got to ask, totally unrelated. How many of you, after this crazy year of 2020, um, this is your first time back in person, in the corporate body of believers, celebrating God as a group? Just throw your hands up real quick. I know they'll be all over the room. Man, we celebrate you. We're so glad you're here. Welcome home. 
Man, this year's been nuts. So they're in the upper room. They're about to observe this very traditional, very sacred time of a Passover supper. Jesus being a rabbi is now leading his apostles through this experience. And in verse 17 of Mark 14 says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining. Say reclining. Yeah, you'll need to remember that. They were reclining at the table and eating, and Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of y'all is going to betray me, one who is eating with me. And then they began to sorrow and say, they're bantering back and forth around the room, saying, Well, is it me? Is it me? Could it possibly be me? And he said to them, It's definitely one of y'all. I just told y'all. It's one of the twelve. One of you guys in the room right now. Here's a clue, Grace Bible. It's a clue he gave them. It's a clue he gives us. It's going to be the one who is dipping his bread in the dish with me, which I would have like got up and moved away from the dish. I don't want to be that guy, you know what I'm saying? Because here's what Jesus goes on to say about him. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man. Man, I, I would never want to hear Jesus say this. It would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. Mm. Y'all feel that watching at home online? Thanks for joining us, YouTube, Facebook, podcasts. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after it, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. Pay close attention, Grace Bible. And he took the cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it, and he said to them, this is the blood of, my, of the covenant, literally the new covenant, which is poured out for many. And truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, when we read this story and we think about this moment, uh, for most of us, uh, the picture that's hanging up at our grandma's house kind of comes to mind. Um, this famous painting from Da Vinci, I believe it was, that did it of the Last Supper. It's almost like Jesus called ahead and said, I'm going to need a table for 12, but we're all just going to sit on one side. Um, some of y'all got, you're just getting that? Okay. I thought that was good. I planned that. That was one joke I meant to say today. Anyways, that's not what it looked like. That's definitely not what that moment looked like. That is a historic and beautiful painting. This is what it would have looked like that night. Um, we know this because this was a typical, like if you, you wouldn't have had a big farm table at your house, this is the kind of table you would have had. If you were somebody that hosted a lot of people for meals, like you would have had this table. It's called a triclinium. Say triclinium. So literally, try, meaning three sides, and clinium, it's low to the ground. You sit on the ground, and you recline. Y'all said that word earlier. You recline against the person to your left. Now, all this stuff's going to be important for, like, the bigger scope of this conversation, so stay tuned with me, because we're going to take a minute here to figure out who's sitting where at the table so that we understand kind of the deeper context of what's happening in this moment. But keep in mind, this side of the table, those of you that are watching online, by the way, I'm pointing up, but I know that it is on the bottom of the screen for you. So just do, I'll try to give you as many verbal cues as I can. So this side of the table is where the most important people sat, if you had a dinner party at your house. And then it just kind of tapered off down from there to where you get to the end of the table. This would have been your lowest ranking servant sitting over here. Let's see if we can use some context clues. I'll give you all some hints. Let's play a little game and see if we can figure out who's sitting where at the table. This will matter later in our conversation. Okay, let's start with the gimme. Here's the easy one. The host of the party, the rabbi of a Passover Seder, the person who is like conducting the dinner um, goings on, um, this is the person that would have sat in the second seat. All right, from here you got one, two in the second seat. So the host of this party, the leader of this meal is who? Give me your best Sunday school answer. It's always safe when a preacher asks a question. You say Jesus, you're like, there's 99% chance. 
So Jesus is sitting in the, the host seat. This is the guy running the meal. Now let's go to Jesus' right, this first seat right here. Um, context clue for who's sitting there we find, I believe it's in John 13, when Jesus says, hey, somebody here is going to betray me, um, John 13, there was one disciple that leaned back. Remember, they're all leaning to the left. He leaned back against Jesus. He leaned back against Jesus' chest, and he said, is it me? Who was, who was the disciple that leaned back against Jesus' chest in John 13? Those of you that have read that before, who was it? You remember? John, 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 John. So this is the youngest of the apostles here. This is the teenager. But he's leaning back against Jesus. He and Jesus were very close. This seat was reserved for the person that the host of the party trusted the most. Like, this is the cup bearer seat. So whichever one of your servants you trusted the most, they would sit to your right because all the food gets delivered here and you pass it down. You want them to taste the food and wine first to let you know if it's going to be safe for everybody else. Make sure the chicken was cooked all the way through. You know what I'm saying? So this would have been somebody really trusted, a really loyal, faithful servant, probably your highest ranking servant in the house was seated next to you. Now, to Jesus' left, the third seat up there, this is when it gets interesting. To Jesus' left, if you were hosting a party at your house, the person sitting to your immediate left would be the person you are most proud to show off. This would have been your most powerful, prominent rich friend, whatever it was, like you were kind of displaying this friend to your other friends to say, like, look who I roll with. And so this is called the seat of greatest honor that sits to the left of Jesus. Now, guess who Jesus puts on this particular night, the night that he was betrayed, he sits a man in the seat of greatest honor. The clue that we get is in Mark 14, because Jesus said, as the plates are being passed to the left, the one that's going to betray me is the one that dips his bread into the bowl with me. Who was that? Are you serious? On the night that Jesus was betrayed? He's the one that picks the seating arrangements. And the one sat in the seat of greatest honor was Judas. Let's keep going. Most of these other guys are inconsequential for the sake of this conversation. But let's go to this guy all the way over here on the end. The one at the very end of the row. The one of the 12 that on this particular night had to sit in the servant's seat. Now, whoever, if you were hosting a dinner party, this guy's job, first and foremost, was to wash everybody's mangy feet before they came into your house and sat at your table. So they would wash the feet as they came in. This is your lowest ranking servant. They would wash the feet as they came in, and they would probably have to help serve the meal and make sure everybody was taken care of before they got to sit down and eat and relax. Now, there was one apostle in particular that when Jesus got up from the table to wash feet, got offended by it, probably embarrassed by it because he knew that he was the one who was supposed to wash everybody's feet. But when the apostles came in and he saw the seating chart and realized he's sitting down in the servant seat or the least of these seats, he said, I ain't washing none of y'all jokers' feet. Can wash your own feet. And then Jesus, the master, gets up and starts washing the feet of the disciples, and one of the apostles gets offended. Who is that? Peter, Simon. Yeah, probably because he really, how embarrassed he was that he was supposed to wash the feet. And then Jesus, the highest ranking guy in the room, is the one who ends up doing it. Now, if you read, I believe it's Luke chapter 22, after dinner that night, there was an argument that broke out amongst the apostles. And the argument was over who is the greatest amongst the apostles? I wonder who started that fight. <laughs> Peter. He was mad. 
He was embarrassed. This was a terrible night for him. He was one of Jesus' closest friends, not just an apostle. But now here he is at this very sacred meal, expecting that he would have been the one seated right next to Jesus in the seat of honor. But instead, Jesus sits him at the very end of the table, which is kind of interesting that Jesus would do this. Do you remember what Jesus' response was while the apostles were arguing about who was the greatest? Do you remember what Jesus responded to them and said? Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Pay close attention. I tell you the truth that the greatest among you will become the least, and the least among you will become the greatest. Some of y'all picking up what I'm putting down? He let them know. He said, hey, um, don't be mistaken. I tell you the truth that the greatest among you, Judas, will become the least of all the apostles. And the least among you will become the greatest. This is shortly before he told Peter, you're the rock that I'm going to build my church on and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Who cares if you got to sit at the end of the table and wash feet on your way to what I have you called to? And this reminds me, like, this is what I have to say to y'all in your journey of learning to be missional, learning to, like, walk faithfully in the call that God has on your life. I want you to be reminded, like, the significance, your significance within the kingdom of God has nothing to do with where you are sat at the table. It has everything to do with your perseverance and the calling that you have received. So this is why it's important. So, some of y'all sitting there this morning say, well, I might not ever have a microphone wrapped around my head. Well, I might not ever write a book that's going to reshape Christian culture. I don't even have a cool podcast. I've never even been backstage at a Christian concert before. Like, you're mad about where you got to sit at the table. But I want to remind you, and this picture reminds us that your significance within the kingdom of God has nothing to do with where you've been sat, what gifts you've been given, what you're doing. It has everything to do with your willingness to walk in the calling that God has placed on your life. Okay? So now that we know where everybody's seated, let's get back to the dinner. Now, as they were having dinner that night, Jesus, as they were kind of closing out like the meal portion, Jesus begins to kind of lay out the elements so that they can have kind of the ceremonial Passover moment at this meal. And we kind of get this picture that there was like a cup of wine on the table, and that cup represented the blood of Jesus, and the bread represented his body. Not so much so at a Passover Seder. As a matter of fact, there would have been four cups on the table. Four big goblets of wine that signified the four promises that God had made to Israel all the way back in the days. Have you seen the movie Prince of Egypt? All the way back in the day when they were in captivity and slavery in Egypt. Just, I'm going to show you real quick. You don't even have to turn here. Here's what the four promises that God made were. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. This is what each one of those cups represented. Hang in with me. If you checked out, check back in. you got to know this stuff for the rest of this sermon to make sense. Jesus says in verse 6 of Exodus 6, promise number one, I'm going to bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That would have been cup number one. I'm going to bring you out. Cup number two is I'm going to deliver you from slavery. That would be promise number two. Cup number three is I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's cup number three. Cup number four is I'm going to take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's what these four cups would have represented. And so just to recap it with you, here's, here's the four promises. Cup number one, Jesus, the rabbi, whoever was leading the Passover meal would hold it up and say, hey, remember, God promised us, promised our people generations ago that he was going to bring us out of slavery. 
or that he was going to bring us out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. And isn't he awesome? He's a God who keeps his promises. Praise God. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would take cup number one. They would drink deeply of it as if to identify with that covenant promise to say, yes, God has delivered on the goods. And they would pass it to the person to their left. Cup number two, they would do the same thing. God promised to rescue us from slavery, and he did it, and he's done it over and over again throughout history. And, and they would say, yeah, 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 God's a promise keeper. Amen. Praise God. And they would lift up cup number two, and they would drink deeply of it, and they would pass it along to the guy to their left. Promise number three is, I will redeem you. That's the cup of salvation. Promise number four is, I will bring you with me. In other words, cup of second coming. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you to take you to be with me where I am. Now listen, every rabbi in history, during this Passover Seder meal, they pick up cup number one and they would celebrate. They pick up cup number two and they would celebrate. Then they would pick up the cup of the Redeemer, the cup of salvation, cup number three, and the rabbi would remind him, like, God made us a promise. He's kept his promises so far. He's going to keep this one too. He's going to send a Redeemer that's going to rescue us, a Messiah, one that's going to come and, and save us all once and for all, but they would set cup number three aside because there was deferred hope. God had not yet answered that promise. But on this night, Jesus picks up cup number three, the first rabbi in history, and he fills it up with a fresh cup of new wine, and he hands it out to his apostles, and he says these words, this is my covenant with you. Take and drink, which would have said two really glaring, disorienting things to some ancient Hebrew fishermen. Thing number one is, this is Jesus saying, I am the one who has come to redeem you with outstretched arms. I didn't realize God was going to be that literal with that promise, and he sure enough did. He says, I am the one that God has promised. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to rescue the world to whosoever would believe in me. I am the Redeemer. And the second thing that they would have heard when Jesus specifically chose language, when he holds the cup out to them and says, this is my covenant with you, take and drink, that would be the same as someone in the 21st century getting down on a knee and saying, will you marry me? And to a bunch of old dusty fishermen, they were thinking, say what? Jesus inviting us into everlasting covenant with him, all 12 of us, and by extension, anyone who would believe as well? Yeah, here, here's the deal. How many uh, young, single, and ready-to-mingle fellas do we got in the house this morning? Throw them hands up. I'm trying to help you out. Throw them hands up. <laughs> let's get it off social media and let's put it out in the public. Go ahead. Throw them up and hold them up. Young, single, and ready-to-mingle fellas. You ain't married yet? Single guys? Okay, we got, I know we got more. Y'all are just the brave ones. Okay, look. <laughs> Ladies, look around. Y'all are welcome. Okay, meet up in the back. These boys are big spenders. They're getting Taco Bell for Easter lunch today. <laughs> Here's the deal. Listen, fellas, those of y'all young single men, if you live back in this particular time in history, you have one job, bro, and that was to be about your father's business. That was it. To carry on the family name, to be about the family business, to carry me. You, you and your father were one. When you go into town to conduct business affairs from city to city, if you struck up a negotiation, if you made a decision, if you hired, if you fired, it was as if the father himself was doing it because you were one in, in the world of business at that particular time. So you would hope that your dad had a big thriving business that would allow you to travel because while your job was to be about your father's business, there was also another agenda on your mind. 
you wanted to find you a late. And so as you would go from town to town, city to city, you'd be keeping your eyes peeled. And when you finally saw the one that your soul loved, when your heart just turned to mush inside of you and then butterflies were overwhelming and you're like stumbling through your speech, when you finally found the one that you longed for, you wouldn't send her an Instagram message. You'd actually have to go back, tell your dad that you found the one that your soul loved and then he would have a job to do. Your dad would have to travel to the city where her and her daddy were because he was going to have to strike up a deal with her dad. Now, ladies, just so you know, he wasn't going there to negotiate in order to buy the girl for the son. He was going there to negotiate to buy the opportunity for his son to ask her to marry him. A lot of pressure, fellas, and you better not get it wrong. This could get real expensive by the looks of some of y'all. So once the daddies got together and they made their negotiation, they decided, okay, we've got a fair trade here. I've bought my son the right to ask this girl to marry him. Then they would bring both families together for like a big feast, a big meal. Now, in our culture, like the element of surprise when you ask someone to marry you is kind of part of the, the magic and the romance. But in that particular time, everybody knew why you were having that dinner. And you better darn sure hope that she didn't have a twin sister, brother, because you had only seen her once or twice, and you don't want to mess it up. And so while you were having dinner that night, you're just, I mean, your heart's just like jumping out of your chest. You're terrified at the thought that she might say no. Your mom's kicking you under the table saying, are you going to do it? This is the reason why we traveled all the way over here. These hotel rooms ain't cheap, dadgummit. When she finally kicked you enough, when you finally prayed the butterflies down a little bit in, in your stomach, there would come a point in the meal where you would do this. You would fill up a goblet of wine, and you would hold it out to this girl who you're so longed for, and you would say these words. This is my covenant with you. Take and drink. At which point, lady, she had an option. She could take that cup and set it aside and say, no, your breath stink a lot more than I remember. <laughs> or she could take that cup and drink deeply of it as if to identify with that covenant. And that was her way of saying, I do. I will. This is when it got fun. Um, the families would then have to go back to their hometowns. The bride-to-be back to her hometown, the groom-to-be back to his hometown. Yes, believe it or not, like... In God's design of marriage, they didn't just move in together and get ready for the wedding day. He had them go back to their own hometowns to prepare themselves for what was about to come. You see, the son, he had to spend some time away from the bride because, see, he had to go and prepare a place for her. Because in his father's house, there were already many rooms, and he had to go back to his father's house to make a mansion for her. Now, ladies, before you get too excited, um, the word mansion in Hebrew is the word insula, which means apartment. Um, so he was building on, yeah, <clears throat> and y'all are thinking, thank God I didn't marry a Jewish boy, you know what I'm saying? You are moving in with the family. Yeah, so he had to go to his father's house that there were already many rooms and prepare a place for her. He was building her an apartment on top into the family dwelling, and y'all were going to move in with the family. Now the son would continue to work diligently for six months up to a year. Here's the bottom line is he didn't know the day or the hour that he was going to get to go get his bride. Only the father knew. 
because the father would carefully scrutinize the work that the son was doing, and until it was completely finished, he wouldn't let the son go. Now let's jump over to where this girl lives as she's preparing herself. Now when she arrived back home, the people in her town, they didn't even call her by her name anymore. They actually called her this Hebrew word, the word mikvah. Say mikvah. And what that means is, or mikna, mikna is what it is. Say mikna, which means the one who was bought with a price. That's what they called her in town. And now her job, not knowing the day or the hour that the groom was going to come and get here, she hung to the hope that he would fulfill his promise of returning to get his bride. Her one job every day was to just be ready. She didn't know the day or the hour that the father would tell the son that he could come. She would just prepare herself every morning just in case that was the day that the son returned to redeem his bride. Now, the best man, he had a job in between all this to help keep things cohesive. He would actually run back and forth between the two cities, delivering messages between the bride and the groom to remind one another of the covenant that they had. Continue to trust in me and wait for me. I'm finishing up. I'm at, I'm at the house. I'm getting things fixed up and ready for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. And she would send those notes back to him. Do you still love me? Check yes or no. Don't you miss me? Check yes or no. And it was like the best man had the worst job of all. But that's what held the whole thing together. And then finally, there would come a day where the son had labored diligently with his bride on his mind, with every nail that he hammered in, with every board that he cut. This was all for her. And finally, when the father had carefully scrutinized the work and realized, you know what, son, it is finished you may now go and get your bride. And he'd gather up, he'd gather up his boys, his posse, his groomsmen, the family would kind of pack up and get ready to travel, but he'd gather up his boys and they'd beat the family there. I mean, they'd saddle up their horses, they'd grab their ram's horns, shofars, and they would just run toward the city as fast as they could to come and get that bride. And that bride would be there waiting patiently and she got up that morning and prepared herself just like she did every morning. And on that day, that fateful day, she would hear the sound of the trumpets blow. And when she heard the call of those trumpets, she knew that the groom had come to get her. And so she would come out of her house. She had already prepared herself. She would come out of her house and she would walk down the stairs and walk down the aisle and they would be married, and then they would feast. Oh, they would feast. For weeks, they would celebrate the covenant that had finally come together, the long-awaited day. Are you catching what's happening here? You see, Jesus told his disciples that he was going to have to go away for a little while. But he was going to prepare a place for them, John 14. And as soon as he was finished, he didn't know when the day or the hour would be. Only the father knew that. But as soon as he was done, as soon as dad told him he could come back, he would pack up his stuff. He would grab his holy angels. They would grab their trumpets. They would brush down their horses. And they'd come as fast as they could. And he just told them, man, y'all just be ready. Because you don't know the day or the hour that I'm going to show up, but I promise I'll be back. I'm getting it ready just for you. With every, with every board that I'm cutting, every nail that I'm putting in, you are on my mind. And the Holy Spirit of God is traveling back and forth between us, communicating, keeping us connected. 
You know what's crazy about this? Is that here Jesus is, seated at the triclinium, at Passover, going through the ceremonial observance of each cup and the promises of God, and he extends the cup of the Redeemer out to his apostles with a fresh cup of new wine. And he says, this is my covenant with you. Take and drink. But did you notice, like, he was inviting an unfaithful bride to be his? Judas, by the way, wasn't the only one that betrayed Jesus. They all did. He even told Peter ahead of time that he was going to deny his relationship with him altogether before the rooster crowed three times. And that night, every one of the apostles ran. He extended the cup of covenant to them after he had told them that he already knew what they were going to do. And by extension, the rest of us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Hosea, Isaiah, and Ezekiel refers to us as a wicked and adulterous bride. Jesus, seated at a table with apostles that were all going to abandon him. And yet he extends the cup of covenant to them and by extension extends the cup of covenant to us to whosoever would believe in him. You know what's even crazier? As if that wasn't nuts enough. You know what's even crazier? I showed you who was sitting at the table where because I wanted you to see this moment. When Jesus extends the cup of the new covenant and says, this is my covenant with you, take and drink, who did he hand it to first? Judas. Could it be that the love of God is so deep so vast? Could it be that his love is so high and so far-reaching that on purpose, the night that he was going to be betrayed, he put Judas right next to him so that he could show the world there was no one too far gone, too dark, too broken, no rap sheet too long, no sin too black and wicked, that he wouldn't extend the cup of covenant to you too. You're catching the love story of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've grown up in the church world and church people or maybe your family or whatever, maybe that has like wrecked your view of who God is and how he works. Let the Last Supper be a picture of the magnitude of the love of Jesus. And every time we gather together and take the Last Supper, it is about remembering his body that was broken for us through the bread and his blood that was shed for us through, through the juice, but like, man, it's even bigger than that. When we gather around this table to take these elements, it's a reminder that Jesus invited us into a covenant. And this is us saying, I still do. For those of you that are believers and followers of Jesus, this is, this is you standing at the altar again 
with the Savior. There's a reason why in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, like the Apostle Paul tells us very clearly, like whoever eats of this bread and drinks of this cup in an unworthy manner, like heaps judgment upon their head. Because who, stand at, who stands at the altar with the king who has invited them into covenant marriage and says, I do, but you don't actually do? This is why we tell people, like, when we do communion, it's, if you're not a believer, this isn't for you. And we don't do that to try to ostracize anybody, but, like, who says I do when you don't? And so you may have grabbed a cup on the way in here, whatever you might need to just slide that in your purse and pray about. Set that thing up on your dresser and just pray about this and what God would have you do with that, his body and his blood. If you are a follower of Jesus, when you gather around the table, when you take these elements, it's just a reminder of the covenant that was extended to you when you were wicked and sinful and lost and hopeless. And this is your perfect groom who has made you clean and washed you white as snow on that cross, who has defeated your greatest enemies, death itself, the enemy named Satan. This is a reminder that he's still standing at the altar and he's still saying, I still do. How about you? But I bet you, I bet you, in here right now, pay attention to me now, I bet you there's somebody in here, I bet you there's multiple people in here that did not yet understand the love of Jesus until right now. And the Holy Spirit of God who communicates between the bride and groom has like wrapped his hands around your heart and you can just feel God like dealing with your heart. Because you've never confessed him as Lord. You've never surrendered your life to him. I bet even in this moment right now, there are many that the Lord is chasing down in this room. By you taking this cup today and drinking of it, though you have not yet been a follower of Jesus, when you take and drink of this cup, this is a declaration to the King of glory and everyone that's around you that for the first time, you do. You say yes to Jesus. And you're choosing to follow him with your life. Even though you don't know all the ins and outs yet, me neither. We're working through that together. And so I ask that you would take this cup. Those of you that are going to participate in this. And I read to you words from the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the Corinthian church. Verse 23 of chapter 11, he says... For I received from the Lord, which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, I just can't get past that, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Father, we are reminded the magnitude of the love of our King who allowed his body to be broken beyond recognition and there was no part of him that he would have spared if it meant that we were gonna have to face the wrath of God. He poured it all out and we are thankful and we are grateful and we, we are reminded through these stale old wafers. We are reminded of the bread of life that nourishes us in such a way that we will never hunger again. Our King Jesus. Grace Bible. This is Christ's body broken for you. 
take and eat. And in the same way, he also took the cup. And after supper, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I want you to do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Lord, like we are reminded by this simple little cup of orange juice that Jesus poured out every ounce of his blood so that we might be made whole and made clean and made righteous before God. Our sins were so far beyond help that we needed a savior. And God, I thank you for sending your son. And Jesus, I thank you for stepping into our gap to pay a price that we could never pay to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. And by making us clean, purifying your bride, though we were far from it, and though we still fail often, I thank you that you have washed us white as snow. Grace Bible, this is Christ's blood that was shed for you. Take and drink. Father, we lift up the name of Jesus knowing that there is no one like him. He's the name that is above every name. His love is matchless. His sacrifice limitless. His glory unending. Lord, we thank you for inviting us into your forever family and making a way. You are the way maker. You are our king. We celebrate you today, the resurrected Savior. In Jesus' name.